Hello, and welcome to Princeton Alumni Weekly's podcast, a monthly Q&A show with various members of the Princeton community. I'm Carrie Compton, and this month I spoke with now Irvin Painter, Princeton Professor Emerita of History, who was 67 years old when she enrolled as an MFA student at the Rhode Island School of Design. During her second year there, her book, The History of White People, was released and would become a New York Times bestseller. It was a disorienting event, as she describes it. On one hand, there was the elation of receiving a laudatory review on the front page of the New York Times Review of Books. And on the other, there was the ever-present stinging criticisms she experienced in art school, which she calls one long tearing down. Her latest book, Old in Art School, describes her late-in-life journey from a preeminent historian to a painter. She began her art school education with a BFA at age 64 from the Mason Gross School of Art at Rutgers, New Brunswick, before moving on to RISD. Her memoir describes her delight in acquiring new habits and artistic skills, the growing pains as her artistic sensibilities changed, and the challenges of balancing it all while juggling her obligations to her ailing parents on the West Coast. Painter and I met in her basement studio in Newark, New Jersey, which, fair warning, is sometimes noisy. Let's start with your decision to pursue art. Yeah. You were 64 years old and a prominent historian with many professional accolades under your belt. Then you decide to not just do art in your free time, but to enroll in art school. Yeah. Why? Why? well, that, there's two parts to that question. The first part is why art? And that was the I, you know, sort of looking at stuff. I had been an art major briefly at Berkeley when I was an undergraduate in the 60s. So, and my father taught me to draw and I drew all the time when I was a kid. And, you know, people have asked me, did I want to be an artist when I grew up? And I don't think I thought that far ahead. I'm not a thinker far ahead. I go like from here to there, to there, to there, to there. That's how I do it. But I've always been drawn to imagery, to color, to pattern, to texture. I'm a knitter. I have always been attracted to the visual. And my history writing, Sojourner Truth in particular, and then thinking about the history of white people And that was as I was in art school and realizing how important the visual was in how scientists thought about or theorized race. So art came to me from a long time ago, from knitting and from scholarship. Now that's the art part. The second part is why go to art school? And I was saying to my friends, you know, I'm really thinking about doing something different, doing art. Uh, and my friend said, well, you know, you've got all these degrees already. Uh, you got a PhD from Harvard. What, you know, what, you don't need another degree. And it's true, I didn't need another degree. Um, and at that time, the Newark Museum had a program which got cut in their financial problems um, where you could take classes. 
So I took I took a pastel class because I had never used pastels and it seemed interesting. The guy was really nice, uh, and he knew what he was doing. But I discovered that that aesthetic, that mimetic verisimilitude, make make something so like what it is that you could taste it or touch it. It's not what I wanted. Now, I didn't realize that until I was in that class. That helped me understand how I wanted to see and how I wanted to relate my hand to my art. So, okay, um, not just taking the occasional class. I took the drawing and painting marathon at the studio school in New York. Uh, highly respected, very intense. I wanted to know if I could get up at 6.30 in the morning, go over to A Street, stand up drawing and painting for eight hours, wolf down some dinner, have a crit, and then come back to New York, and then do the same thing the next day, five days a week for five weeks. Yeah, I could. And I really liked it. I really, really liked it. Um, but the problem with the studio school, it's a studio school. And that made me see that I wanted the intellectual context, the intellectual infrastructure of art as well. Mm -hmm. I wanted art history. I wanted art criticism. I wanted artists talking back and forth and people whose work it is to look at art and think about it, to talk about it. So that's how I ended up going to Mason Gross for the BFA. And I don't know if I, if I originally wanted to go to graduate school, but I pretty soon realized I wanted to go to graduate school because I wanted to work harder than the kids did. I wanted to be more intense than the kids. And I thought graduate school would do that, um, which it did. Talk about when you were at Mason Groves, you make a very interesting discovery. You say that um, you discovered that your chief vulnerability of being old and out art school has nothing to do with gender, age, or race, but your lying 20th century lying eyes. 20th century <laughs> eyes. Yeah. Talk about what that means. I had no idea. Because art is supposed to be, art is supposed to be like science mm -hmm. for everybody for all time. And I, I had not grown, grown up in an intensely art-centered home. But my father, his hobby was woodworking. Um, and uh, my father taught me how to draw. Yeah. So, I mean, I had seen things. We had a few books around. And when I was in high school, I was in art club. With, you know, so there was art. And I thought that that art would just carry over into now art. Well, it doesn't, because just like the scholarship, I hate to use the word fashion, but that is the word. Fashions change. The questions change. The mediums change. And the viewers change. So what I brought with me from the 20th century hardly served in the 21st. Appropriation. We talk about Appropriation that is a perfect uh, way, it's a 
totally acceptable way of making art now. You take something off the web. You take some other artist strategy or composition or color. A couple of days ago, I went to the Charlene von Heil show, which is fantastic. And I took pictures close up because of her use of pattern. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. Mm -hmm. Fine. But for a historian and for my 20th century eyes, which prized invention, uh, originality, that didn't do. That was using somebody else's stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had to, and I still do it hesitantly. Well, another thing that you talk about in the book that I think is really interesting is um, these notions of truth. Yeah. We're in an era, as you well know, where the truth is being um, oh, somewhat abused yeah. in day-to-day -day discourse. Yeah. But uh, as a historian, you actually sought out art as an escape from truth. As a historian, I was always very careful. And like the book I did before, The History of White People, it has like a hundred pages of endnotes of saying, this is where that came from, this is where that came from, this is where that came from. And so as a historian, I couldn't ignore the archive. Um, as a historian, I couldn't lie about what was in the archive. And if there was something that I didn't want to see in the archive, I couldn't suppress it. And if there was something I needed from the archive that wasn't there, I couldn't make it up. Mm -hmm. Now I can. <laughs> <laughs> so generally speaking, what would you say, how do you describe being old in art school? And why do you think your age in particular ended up carrying so much significance in that experience? Yeah, let me take the second question first. Our society is in love with youth. Art worlds are to square that love. It's the art world is besotted by youth. So people, uh, gallerists were coming to my fellow students and uh, snooping around. I mean, it's really, it happens at Yale all the time, and it happens somewhat at RISD, that the hot young thing, and we were trained to be hot young artists, and I realized, I don't think I'll ever be hot, but I certainly won't be young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I, the big thing was that the art world is so youth-centered. And uh, I was on a program last night for Yado in which we talked about age and creativity. And one of the people in the audience says, it's like, if you're a woman artist, you can be hot, that is to say, popular, when you're in your 20s, and again, when you're 95, but in between, you're mm. invisible. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so, so you graduate with your BFA from Mason Gross, yeah. and then you decide to enroll in Rhode Island School of Design yeah. for an MFA, yeah. and you say in hindsight that this was a mistake. It was a big mistake. I realized as I was writing, I, I didn't think of it as a chapter called a bad decision until I was well into writing and sort of getting into my own head. It's the beauty of writing, just keeping at it and, and learning things. Um, so my mother 
um, started her descent into mortal illness at the end of the summer of 2008. So during the academic year 2008-2009, I was going back and forth and back and forth. And I had the feeling that I didn't have any time. You know, at this point, what is it, I'm 64, 66 or something like, 66, 67. I'm thinking, ah, oh, my time is so short, my time is, I've got to do this now, I've got to do this now. And I remember one of my, my mentors, um, the much lamented uh, late Denise Tomaso, said, well, you know, you can apply now, and if you don't get in, you can apply next year. Or if you get into one, but not where you really want to go, you can go to the first one, and then you can go to the next one the next year. And I thought, I don't have time for that. And as I was writing, I realized, wait a minute. You just ask anybody, you just ask Google, should you make an important decision when your mother's dying? Mm. And Google will say, of course not, <laughs> of course not. So that's the big thing. And now, I mean, my mother's long dead, my father's uh, two years dead. Mm. I feel like I have all the time in the world. And if I were at that position now, I would take another year at Mason Rose, and maybe I would make art for a while and figure myself out better as an artist, mm -hmm. and then really be able to, I mean, I would be like 80, yeah. <laughs> but I would be able to really make use of graduate school. But then again, would graduate school accept an 80-year-old applicant? Do you feel like you weren't ready? Um, in some ways, I wasn't ready. Uh, I could have used another year of preparation. But then again, that preparation would have made me more of a 20th century artist. I would have had more skills. Mm -hmm. But skills were downgraded. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it would have made me less of a 21st century artist. Mm -hmm. Plus, my big handicap was being old, and I would have just been older. <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, it was a bad decision, but on the other hand, it was okay, and on the third hand, I did survive. And I don't think I would have been any less pathetic if I had had better skills, or been in the art world longer, or been older. I would have been just as pathetic because the experience of graduate art school is so patheticizing. Mm. In what way? It's, um, Emma Amos uh, told me when I was at the studio school, you know, way before I went to Mason Grove, she said, graduate school, graduate art school is just one long tearing down. Really? Yeah. And I have talked to people who have done creative writing in the phase whether for nonfiction, fiction, poetry, whatever, and their stories match mine, especially if they're black women. Graduate schools are notoriously white and white-centered. So for writing, for instance, what kind of writing do our professors tending to want? It's the little stuff, it's the everyday, it's you know, walking down your street in Brooklyn, not something dramatic like, say, having to deal with racism or sexism mm -hmm. or poverty or whatever, mm -hmm. that 
is so much a part of the rest of us. Mm -hmm. So I would bet that a white student, a white woman from a working class background would feel some of the same kind of alienation mm -hmm. I felt of my classroom. My class background was pretty much, I mean, I was not as rich. I mean, I was at RISD with some people who were much wealthier than I. But I'm not poor. I mean, I could afford to go to RISD. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, do you consider yourself a 21st century artist now? Yeah. Yeah. Has your taste changed? Have you almost cast off some of your old favorites for new? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, R.B. Catan, who is a, was a virtuoso painter, was one of my favorites when I was an undergraduate. And I mentioned him in my book, where he wrote this cockamamie, uh, What's it called? Uh, the uh, it's got Jewish in it, uh, which is part of what got him in trouble as a painter, because ah. he painted as a Jewish painter, which was not to be done. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I used to love his painting, a figurative painting, virtuoso painting. I don't like it anymore. Hmm. I mean, it's okay, and I admire the technique. But he's no longer one of my very favorite painters. Hmm. So talk about how you work and how often you work nowadays. Yeah. Um, so on Wednesday, I'm going to talk to my literary agent. I'm going to tell her that I want to make an artist book about Emmett Till and how I've experienced the the thing of uh, Emmett Till's murder over time. And I wanted it make it an artist book in which I draw all the images, heavier in images than um, text, or maybe 50-50. Um, I didn't know that's what I wanted to do at first. But the question is time. You know, what do I use my time for? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have as much time to make art. I'm really, I, I, I love printmaking. I probably should have been a printmaker because I work in series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what have been some of the yeah. most memorable reactions to your book? Um, for me, the very different ways that people respond to. So um, one of my first book events was in Saranac Lake with a painter friend, uh, Frank Owen. And what Frank talked about was my use of artist colors to talk about color. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people with an art background are likely to like that. Other people really appreciated my honesty about my parents, mm -hmm. even my anger with my father. And just admitting that my father was depressed and mm -hmm. talking about some of his rants and his imaginings. So that part, um, I remember, see, in Seattle, um, 
a young woman in the audience, because um, you know the book starts with you'll never be an artist, and my immediate response to Henry is Henry, that's bullshit. And then as you go through, you discover that I turn into this pathetic mess. She said, why couldn't you keep that confidence of Henry, that's bullshit, throughout? And I said, I just couldn't. And the audience applauded. Right. They loved the honesty of weakness, you mm -hmm. might say. Mm -hmm. So different, different readers get blown on to different parts. Yeah. Um, I've had several people write to me in their 60s, in their 80s, in their 70s, saying that they went back to art school at an advanced age, which could be anything from 32 yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to in their 60s, and uh, telling me about their experience, and very often, mostly saying they recognized yeah. what I said. Speaking of um, Henry and the harsh words he had for you, yes. um, this was an instructor of yours who told you would never be an artist, yes. try as you might. Um, have and you trying was, was a fault of mine. Right. Yeah. Have you heard from him? No, I haven't heard. I've heard from uh, Stephen Westfall, my painting teacher at Mason Gross, who okay. really likes them. But the others have not said anything. Oh, and I have my my friend teacher, who was my friend teacher at the time, Deborah Balkin. You know, we've been friends throughout, so yeah. But the man who's the head of the Board of Trustees is a big fan of the book. And I'm going to go back to RISD in the spring. Okay. And the administrator, newly hired administrator for diversity, and uh, Deborah, my criti criticism teacher, we will talk. And then the head of the trustee board, uh, Michael Salter, will have a reception for me. So he is the official embrace of RISD, even if the faculty is not so sure. Do you have anything that we didn't talk about that you want to add? Yeah, one thing, which is at the end of the book. Do not see yourself through other people's eyes. And um, I have had several people tell me that, that at men too, that that is really, really good advice. And it's, it's so simple, but it's hard one. And it's hard to keep at it. It's hard to keep inside yourself and not be crushed by what society thinks of you as an older person, as a woman, as an old woman, as an old black woman, as a black woman as a dark-skinned black woman. There's just so much in the air that either says no, or you're wrong, or you're not here. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing is, and I say, I think at some point in the book, that I would like more people to be able to say, as black people said about black, say it loud, I'm old and I'm proud. And I have actually done that with some of my audiences, and people love it, even people who are not old. And I start them by saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And white people get a kick out of that, yeah. too. It feels very liberating, they say. Um, but so that's one thing you can see, to be able to say, I'm old and I'm proud, to embrace 
And then what I realized, why it's so hard to embrace hope, is that old people, as normal people, are still invisible in our visible culture, our visual culture. So for instance, again to go to the parallel with black, when I grew up, I never saw black people represented. And if a black person was represented, it was like a big deal. And then it got so a black person could be represented as a black person. And then around 2000, black people or actors or whatever could be represented just as people. So now, you know, in advertisements for fancy cars, there'll be a black person driving it. Not as a black person, well, sort of. There, there are some connotations to a cool-looking black person, um, but driving the car as a person. Now I see old people as old people. Let me sell you some adult diapers. Um, but not so much just as people. And that's what I would like to see. Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.